0: It's Aspen Ideas To Go from the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. Gun violence is top of mind for Americans as students around the country rally for tighter gun control. The school shooting in Parkland, Florida, sparked a movement that has motivated young people to rise up. For one U.S. community, gun violence is sadly old news. Chicago has seen a steady stream of shootings. 2016 was especially deadly. The city reported nearly 800 murders that year, the deadliest in two decades. The number of deaths has crept down, but gun violence is still a major problem. Aspen Ideas To Go brings you compelling talks from onstage events held by the Aspen Institute. Today's discussion is from the Aspen Ideas Festival held in June 2017. The Institute is a nonpartisan forum for values-based leadership and the exchange of ideas. The poverty-stricken parts of Chicago saw a surge in shootings in 2016. Nearly half of the gun crimes that year happened in just five neighborhoods. At the Aspen Ideas Festival, Ron Brownstein, a senior editor at The Atlantic, pulls out two graphs.
1: I'm I'm sorry, I don't have them on a slide, but just hold up two slides from the University of Chicago's crime lab.
0: One is a crooked line that shows the homicide rate in Chicago Chicago from 1985 to 2016.
1: The homicide rate is not quite as high now as it was at its peak in the early 1990s during the height of the, of the crack epidemic, But it will show you that you've got a hockey stick there at the end, pointing almost straight up.
0: The number of murders in the city jumped by more than half in one year from 2015 to 2016, according to the University of Chicago Crime Lab. Since then, the number of deaths has dropped by 16 percent in 2017. The first two months of 2018 look even better, with homicides down 22% compared to the same period in 2017. So what's working and what's not? Liz Dozier, Tom Dart, and Corey Brooks are all working on interventions. Dozier is a former principal at a Southside Chicago high school. In 2014, she was featured in a CNN documentary.
2: Who was the other girl? I need you to go down there
3: principal Dozier and her team have transformed the culture at Finger High. Ladies, ladies,
0: Now Dozier leads Chicago Beyond, an organization that works on education and safety to improve the life outcomes of young people in Chicago. Corey Brooks pastors New Beginnings Church on Chicago's south side, and Tom Dart is the sheriff of Cook County, the country's second largest sheriff's department. Ron Brownstein moderates the conversation, which was held in the summer of 2017. He starts by pointing out that Chicago's problems are bigger than the other largest cities in America, like Los Angeles and Atlanta. Their homicide rate hasn't spiked like Chicago's. His first question is for Sheriff Dart.
1: Why is the problem more acute in Chicago today than in our other largest cities? Sure?
3: You know, obviously there's, it's complex, there's multiple factors, but some of the, the chief ones are the fact that our our gang structure that we had had, like other cities as well, was very hierarchical. And there was one or two, and you could sort of predict what would happen based on shootings and retribution, all that type of stuff. We have now fractionalized to such a way where blocks have different gangs, and even though they're affiliated with, say, the Gangster Disciples, one of our biggest gangs, that doesn't mean just because you're in that gang, you're safe from another Gangster Disciple. So you have that, these atomization of these gangs, You add to it the fact that social media has taken on a different role here, where a slight on social media that all of us would sit there and say, oh, come on, literally starts off the shooting. And then you add to it the fact that so many of these young men, and it's mostly all young men, have access to guns, it's very easy, they have very limited opportunities in their community as far as jobs and all the rest of the things you'd expect. And then you add to it our policing is in a state of crisis right now, and it has been for a few years now, where our closure rate for homicides is plummeted to the point now where when I talk to detainees at the jail, and I do that on a regular basis, they'll tell me all the time, I was like, well, Tom, of course I carry a gun. You, you would have to be nuts not to. It's so violent out there, and crossing all these different lines I have to do just to get from point A to point B. If I don't have a gun, and I come across somebody, I'm dead. If I do have a gun... Worst case scenario, I get picked up. No one gets convicted. Everyone gets bonded out. And so you have the psychology that's building up. And then you layer into it, say, the poverty, the hopelessness, and all of that. And that's where you have this mess with absolutely no end in sight. No end in sight. And I would believe uniquely situated where it's not open to a political type of resolution. Because politicians, by and large, want really quick solutions. They want one or two things. And that's not going to happen here.
2: Place. I think I think it's this. I agree with what Tom said, but I also think it's like this notion of how the chickens have really come home to roost. That this is not just a matter of something that's happened over the last couple of years. This is something that has been boiling. When we look at disinvestment in communities, when we look at a failing educational system. We look at like mental health centers closing down across our city over the last couple of years. That this, there's a culmination of things that have bubbled up in conjunction with the things that Tom is talking about that have led us to where we are at this point.
4: Upward of 80% of some of the households on the south side of Chicago and the west sides of Chicago in these impoverished areas are single parent households. So one of the main factors driving a lot of the violence is that you have young individuals, young men specifically, who are growing up in homes where there's no parental influence of a father. You allow them to grow up in a a system where there's no father and then you send them off to a school uh, that's probably um, not funded well, some of the best, some of the better teachers are are not in those areas. And then you have them drop out somewhere around the ninth grade. And here they are on the streets, uh, upward of 40% of them being unemployed and unemployable. Uh, they have no skills. And, and for those who do have skills or for those who are trying to get skills, uh, there's definitely a lack of opportunity. So you have all of that in one neighborhood, and then you infuse it with drugs and hopelessness, and it's a time keg just waiting to explode. And what we have in Chicago is not just uh, the the issue of gangs, which is a major issue. Uh, We're facing economic inequality, and I really do believe for our day it's not a civil rights issue Uh, i tell people it's a civil rights issue and until we figure out a way to allow these individuals to get involved economically into society uh, they're going to continue to to breed uh, a lot of violence let's let's go right to that but before we do uh,
1: uh, sheriff dart said that he does not see this significantly improving in the near term Uh, i wonder what you both think about that do you think is, is this locked in for at least a while
4: well, I tend to think a little differently. I think um, it's time for us to have all hands on deck in Chicago. Uh, we're such a fragmented city, uh, black, white, uh, educated, non-educated, the haves and the haves not. It's really a, a tale of two cities, and, and you, can't do, um, you can't be a productive city when people aren't coming together. So somehow, some way, we got to figure out a way for all of us to have all hands on deck and collaborate and build um, consensus amongst organizations uh, to help people. I really do believe that when we get our hands on um, the, the group that's primarily responsible for a lot of the shootings in Chicago, some have suggested that there's a group of 1,200 or 1,400 individuals who are either uh, the shooters or are going to be shot. And it seems that if the police know who these individuals are, that somehow we should try to lead them into a system that is more productive instead of just arresting them and sending them off to jail. We need to try to provide the resources. And I believe if we can do that, if we can somehow get the the, the gangs, the gang leaders, the gangs, um, individuals in the gangs and start younger, I believe that we can turn the violence around. But it has to come uh, from a grassroots movement. Liz, what is your short term view?
2: I, I agree, too. I think that there's an element of collaboration, obviously, has to be there. the city is very fragmented. When I was a principal um, in Roseland, which is on the far south side of Chicago, I always thought that there was someone, like, downtown somewhere, sort of, like, organizing and moving all these pieces together, and there was this plan in place. And what I've realized is I've taken a different seat in the city and from in, in the philanthropic world and have been in other tables, is that that is not the case. And it feels almost like cats being herded. Everyone's sort of on their own um, agenda, all sort of working towards the same um, ideals, but no one's quite talking and connecting. I think that's that's critical. Um, but I also think we have to realize that even if we hit those 1,200 or 1,400 people, like it is going to take sustained resources over time. It is not something that, regardless if you hit those 1,200 or 1,400 people, you can do that for three months and every, all of a sudden everything gets better. And I think that's missing from the conversation, this ongoing structured supports, not just with those individuals, but how are we not playing whack-a-mole and, and, you know, getting to those the kids who are, you know, 6th, 7th, 8th. How are we building these continuous pipelines of supports for young people? You know, uh,
1: I, you're all working on really interesting interventions, and I want to get to those in one moment, but I, I, I want to go back to what you said a moment ago about the tale of two cities because we see this in a lot of cities around the country now where cities, again, are thriving. They are creating jobs. Uh, you know, if you're on... If you're uh, uh, in, on the north side of Chicago and you watch those condos going up, or in D.C., condos going up, they didn't need those condos 15 years ago because anybody who made that much money was imme- were immediately moving out to the suburbs. But now there are a lot of jobs being created. The challenge is connecting the young people from low-income neighborhoods in the city in any meaningful way to the, jo- to the opportunities that the city is generating and you know uh, the question of whether you're generating a lot of jobs in Chicago for white kids from white for white kids from Ohio or Wisconsin or in D.C. from the, from the you know elsewhere in the in the Northeast. I guess my question, Reverend Brooks, is to what it, you know as Chicago and is is kind of bustling again and there is a lot of, you, on the Riverwalk on a summer night. It is a nice place to be. How relevant does any of that seem to the kids you work with? Do they feel they can access that? in any way and have it be an escalator in their own life.
4: The hopelessness is so embedded on the south side of Chicago in these impoverished areas that a lot of uh, young people see themselves as detached from society, detached from the city, detached from all the wonderful things that are going on in Chicago, and just as you said, there are a lot of great um, buildings and construction going up around the city, but these young individuals, specifically these young black males, don't see a way in. They, they don't see a way into the unions to learn the trades. They don't see a way into uh, a lot of the schools no longer teach uh, trades, so they don't have an opportunity to go and learn construction. And that's the reason why we have to have organizations that are are, are picking up where the schools are not able to, to carry on. And so they definitely don't feel attached. They definitely don't feel part of the system. And as a consequence, um, the hopelessness drives them deeper and deeper into the gang violence and into the violence that we see going on in Chicago.
0: You're listening to Aspen Ideas To Go. On the show today, stopping the violence in Chicago. Find Aspen Ideas To Go in a growing number of places. We're on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SiriusXM's Insight Channel, NPR One, and now Spotify. Spotify. Get the Spotify app, search Aspen Ideas To Go, and start listening today. Now back to our show. Moderator Ron Brownstein asks Sheriff Tom Dart a question.
1: You release more people into the community, I believe, than the the state system combined. Mm -hmm. Um... What are the opportunity, does, does, the, does the tailwind of a more prosperous economy in the city overall in any way create opportunity for them?
3: No, I mean, Hmm. as Reverend Brooks was saying, the sense of hopelessness is so pervasive that it's very difficult for people to get their arms around it. But, I mean, we as a society have to step up to the plate. I I was in our legislature for 11 painful years in Illinois. And so these issues have been talked about forever. The numbers have been there forever. People know what programs work, what don't, all that's there. The difficulty is, is people have a difficult time stepping up on the plate and say, listen, Our criminal justice system is broken, and it's been broken for decades. And how could not the population that is most impacted by that not internalize that and say, listen, they don't care. They treat us as if we don't exist. And then you look around, all the development is going elsewhere. And so you build into not only the sense of helplessness, but there is nobody that we can trust. And so the last person I'm going to go to when I have a shooting is the police. They're not closing any of these cases. And the interaction with the police has been so bad over the years. You have all that collectively. And as you were mentioning, Ron, so we release about 30,000 to 40,000 people a year into the community. Well, the, From the Cook County Jail? From just my jail. Yeah. And yet most people always thought the place to go intervene was down in the prison system. But what they didn't realize is 85% of the people that get scooped up in the jail go right from the jail to the community. And we were just churning them right back out to the same 15 zip codes, mind you, that have no services, no anything. Mm-hmm. And they sit there for God knows how long. I have people waiting on their trial nine and ten years. And so does that build in them the sense that the society as a whole does not care? How could it not? And that's why when I was mentioning earlier, I don't see the the, the light at the end of the tunnel because so many of these programs, and all three of us are working on ones that are really cool, really really optimistic about that. But society as a whole needs to come to terms with the fact that we have overseen a criminal justice system that is absolutely broken and that permeates every, I mean, what would you say if you lived in one of these communities and you had one or two relatives, they were picked up for little or nothing sat in the jail for god knows how long we dropped 20 percent of our cases a year and then just had your case dropped and said hey go on with your life by the way
1: what is the phrase you have people who have spent
3: more time in the jail waiting for their trial than they are ultimately sentenced to oh god we have over a thousand people a year who by the time they end up pleading guilty have served all their time with me waiting for their and case plus right oh my god they build up an additional I think it's 60,000 hours of time that they don't, or days, that they don't get back. They don't get that back. And so you have people sit there and say, there's no connection. And then I always thought, I'm a former prosecutor too. I always thought, oh, the notion that people would plead guilty who didn't do it, that doesn't happen. Well, what would you do if your lawyer came to you and said, listen, if you plead guilty today, you walk out the door because you've sat here so long, or you can roll the dice on a trial four months from now and see what happens. And if you get sentenced, you know they, they give you more if you actually go to trial. People will just say, all right, well, I just want to get out of this place. And so my, my point is, is that people then see the criminal justice system as well as they should. It works well for some people. For others, it doesn't. And is clearly d- detailed by the fact that when we have people in our jail, I cannot tell you, I have about 200 people that they need $500 to get out of my jail, 500 bucks to get out of my jail. But and a, a person with any amount of money would be able to walk right out the door. And so if you have money, the system sets it up in such a way where you can bail out if you want, you're not gonna have a lawyer that's overwhelmed, and you're gonna move along and probably get probation. If you sit there, you plead guilty.
1: Liz, back to to my uh, question about kind of whether the overall improved economic climate offers any opportunities here. I was with, uh, last year, uh, the, the vice president of a big financial firm in Chicago who told me they, were, they had hired in that, in their current class of new employees from 125 different colleges around the country. And they basically said, look, we can get people from anywhere mm-hmm. to come here because, you know, it is a, an attractive place to live again November to April notwithstanding. <laughs> um, uh, um, And, but they're trying to partner. Uh, One of the things that the city has tried to do is create partnerships between employers and the community colleges. So they're working with Harold Washington Community College and you have uh, other health providers working with Malcolm X Community College um, and all of the, and and the manufacturers with Richard Daley Community College. Mm -hmm. Do you see any kind of, and graduation rates have been rising Mm -hmm. for high school students, as you know, in Chicago, pretty significantly Mm -hmm. over the last 15 Mm -hmm. years. Does any of this, is any of this making a dent? Are more people who start, young people who start in a very difficult circumstance finding a way into the jet stream of an improving economy?
2: Well, I'll say two things on that. One is that yes, the graduation rates have been going up over the last number of years, which is great, but I think there's there's two things with that. One, what happens to those who are dropping out and not graduating, right? I mean, where are they feeding into and what is happening to them and how are we thinking proactively and creatively about them? But two, I mean, this is 2017. You know, this is not, you know, 1942. People need more than a high school diploma in order to see their way out of poverty, to have higher health health outcomes, to be civically engaged, to be active citizens and participants. And so a high school diploma is no longer good enough. Um, In addition, we're seeing just just marginal increases in terms of college uh, graduation for Chicago public school students. So all that... Uh, matters.
1: Yeah, there's more. There's there, the, the, the rate of going on from high school to college has improved, but the rate of finishing. Right? right that's where you're saying yeah. that's where it's breaking it's true. down
2: and, and it's also i mean if you look at what's happening like 9% of low income young people will ever wind up graduating with a college degree juxtapose that with 77% of their you know high income uh, peers and so there's there a great disparities there one of the things we are trying to do at chicago Beyond is really support programs to try to equalize that like one goal like to try to really make that that gap that's i mean it's, it's not even like wide it's like it's 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 huge grand canyon yeah, yeah
1: i think the, the, the statistic that i always that jumps out at me that I remember the most is if your parents were graduated from college, mm-hmm. you are now five times more likely to graduate mm-hmm. yourself than if someone, and, and you someone whose parents did not. And it kind of, we think of higher education as the as the great escalator of upward mobility, and to some extent it has become a Xerox machine of privilege in the way that it functions. But let's talk for a few minutes. I want to talk, about, we're going to, obviously every, we want to hear about the police community relations and police reform, but before we get to that, let's talk about each of your organizations and the interventions that you are trying to deal with. What gives you the most optimism in what you you are doing and what you are working? Where do you feel that you are seeing the most promise for interventions to break the cycle of lack of opportunity and
4: expanding violence? Well, we started an organization called Project Hood. Uh, It was started in 2012. As a result, I was on top of a roof of a motel. Uh, for 94 days, uh, bringing attention and awareness to gun violence, and I decided um, that I didn't want to wait on government officials to do something about it. I wanted to uh, take the mantle by the hand and and do something. So we started this organization, uh, Project HOOD, H-O-O-D, stands for Helping Others Obtain Destiny, and our focus is those individuals who are deemed undesirable, those individuals that society frowns upon, those gang bangers, those are the ones that we target. Uh, specifically uh, we're trying to get them to understand that they have some of them have great minds uh, they just need another grind uh, and they need another opportunity and so we're trying to transition them uh, by uh, starting an organization it's a, um, a leadership and uh, economic opportunity center an old Walgreens building it uh, mm. was given to us and we've changed that building and now there uh, we're trying to focus individuals on learning entrepreneurship because I really do believe and uh, if you're going to pull people out of poverty regardless of what education they have uh, they're gonna have to learn some entrepreneurship if you're going to change a community uh, we also work on leadership which deals with their character uh, we also deal with the creating opportunities for yourself for those who don't want to be entrepreneurs uh, we started a construction school and even right now today uh, we have our first cohort of 25 people uh, eight uh, females uh, 17 young men who are in class learning construction and hopefully they'll get certified and we'll help them get jobs we also decided to start younger not just wait on individuals to be out of high school or drop out of high school um, but we have a mentoring program uh, for six-year-old boys all the way up to 14 and we partner with corporations and we partner with individuals who uh, typically would not come into our neighborhood Uh, most of the gentlemen that mentor are from the suburbs most of them are are not even African Americans most of them are, are white brothers who come into the city and help us mentor these boys and so our whole program is about taking a self assessment of an individual finding out what they need giving them a life plan that is specific to them and getting them on that life plan partnering with organizations to help them fulfill their life plan, and then setting them on a path uh, toward reaching their destiny, and that's what we do. Mm
1: -hmm. Liz, tell us about Chicago Beyond. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Don't be shy.
2: So as a school principal for many years, I realized that there are so many good people and good programs in our city doing great work. Unfortunately, there's like a a key divider there of having access to resources and tools in which to support an organization to grow. I saw it firsthand. And so Chicago Beyond started last year with the idea to be the, the leading grower of transformative programs and ideas and nonprofits here in the city that are working on two issues that we see as fundamental flip sides of the same coin and our most marginalized communities you cannot separate um, education and safe and safety like those are like they're just flip sides of the same coin they're interlinked and so all of our um, time and resources are devoted to those key issues and organizations that are supporting those issues um, we've partnered with everyone from the dovetail project that supports young fathers and through a 12-week curriculum and helping them to be better parents and gain them on a trajectory to a productive uh, career all the way to one goal that I I mentioned earlier that deals with college access um, last year we supported organizations about seven of them with about 15 million dollars in resources to help really turn the tide of, of what they're doing and so mm-hmm. we're proud to uh, take that seat, in and, seat and this is
1: a this is an innovation challenge right I mean you, you, it's a competition
2: so we have some that we do just direct investments okay. and others we're running which is like an innovation challenge we're really trying to find like what are the innovative ideas out there like who's doing something different even if it's small how can we help help us uh, Spread that idea and help it grow. So the dovetail project that deals with young fathers um, came out of that.
1: Is there? do do the uh, progenitors of the organization, do they, where do they come from? Are they, are they, do they tend to be, you know, established institutions, religious institutions, or is it just individuals on a block? What are they find? I mean, they're in?
2: all over the place. Uh-huh. So last year we ran our innovation challenge. We had a great organization called Story Catchers that has been around for years. It works in the juvenile detention centers and uh, Illinois youth prisons and just is phenomenal getting kids again on a, a positive trajectory to the Dovetail Project. Yeah. So they've come from really all over all the over. place. Yeah. This year is something different. We try to really equalize the playing field We realized that last year when people were applying to us a lot of them had like these fancy grant writers And that was kind of like the you know, it wasn't necessarily fair So this year we opened it up and the first step was just like a video application Just show us like what you're up to tell us what you're up to via video
1: So Sheriff as you mentioned you return an enormous amount of people to the community You have some interventions now going on in the jail I believe aimed particularly at young men in the 18 from the most violent zip codes What do you how are you trying to break the cycle for them?
3: For them, as with, frankly, most of the rest of the population we have there, I, I really looked at it as something where these are people in different levels that are broken. And so, we all around the country, the mentally ill are all been dumped into our places. And so, we have programs unique for them and then support systems in the community. For this you know, group here, this cohort, it's 18 to 24-year-olds from 15 of the most violent sub, um, zip codes within the city of Chicago. And what we do is we house them all together, which is in and of itself unique. They're in a dorm where Mm. it's two dorms now because we've expanded it, where traditionally they'd be trying to hurt each other because they're from all different gangs. And we work with them on all sorts of cognitive programming, uh, parenting classes, anger management, uh, job-related things as well. But then we have developed relationships within the community. So in all the communities they're going back to, we hand them off to them to case manage them and work with them. And we've been doing this program now for um, over a year now. It's uh, Last May, this past May, was a year anniversary. And we've had almost 200 people that we've released from the program. And mind you, the people that we targeted were people on gun offenses. So these were people, under anyone's estimation, were most likely going to be shooting someone or being shot. Um, none of them have been shot. And none of them have shot anybody. And we've only had one of them come back in on a violent crime. And I'm not trying to minimize domestic <clears> violence, but it was a domestic violence case within his house and so on. So for this very young group, we've had a great deal of success. Our difficulty, though, is trying to get the partners on the outside because in Illinois, we have came across this novel um, idea of we don't pass budgets anymore in our state. Yeah, yeah. So, Interesting
1: experiment. Yeah. Yeah,
3: it's really fascinating. It's working out really well. And so... All these different community providers, amazing people, are really not excited when I come banging on their door saying, i got some people I want to hand off to you. And so we've been getting around that so far, but we can expand this greatly to this, this cohort. And the results have been stunning. Not only have none of them been shot or been involved um, with violence, but we've only had a handful of them come back in at all. And so it's a lot like what, what Corey was talking about, Liz was talking about. You, you give them a pathway. You give them the big thing. You give them hope. You give them hope. You give them the notion that someone actually cares about them. In the system, mind you, cares about them, and then you set them on a path, good things will happen there. It's not going to be perfect, but it's better than what every other jail and every prison around the country does is they keep just churning them out, keep your fingers crossed, we cut all our parole programs, we cut all that rest of the programs, and then we act puzzled why our recidivism rate is through the roof. And so, I mean, it's really using logic. It's nothing more than that. We created all this stuff ourselves and it, it's, it's doable. The difficulty is with the political world, as I know from my years on there, they're always looking for the quick fix. Mm-hmm. And so when you're telling them, like Liz was saying, this is something you gotta play the long game on, they're really not that interested. And, you know, they're not interested in funding programs for bad people to start with. But then when they can't sit there and cut a ribbon, you, they lose interest. They're like a five year old. You know, their attention span's gone now. You've lost them. So you're, you're trying to rein them in to say listen, sustainable efforts will help restore these communities.
0: Thanks for listening to Aspen Ideas To Go. One of our featured speakers, Cook County Sheriff Tom Dart, takes part in another discussion at the Aspen Ideas Festival. He talks about how mental illness is rampant in America's correctional facilities.
3: All throughout the United States, this is going on. The mentally ill are being dumped into prisons and jails because of indifference. Not because they're bad people, not because they're criminals, because we as a society don't
2: care.
0: Find the video of the conversation on our website, aspenideas.org, and there's a link in our show notes. Back to our featured conversation. Here's The Atlantic's Ron Brownstein.
1: I, I say the, the, the a obvious big cloud hanging over all of this conversation, and part of what makes the situation in, in Chicago so maddening and tragic is that even as these as communities are dealing with this plague of violence, uh, in many communities, there is intense alienation from the police, policing that is supposed to protect them from uh, the violence. Today, there was an announcement of an indictment of three officers and obstruction of justice uh, in, in, the, uh, in, the, in the McDonald death. Um, I just want to ask each of you where do you think relations between the communities that you work in
4: and the police stand at this point in Chicago? Unfortunately, they're bad. Um... We have a lot of young people in the city of Chicago who don't trust the police. And as a result, um, you see a lot of tension. Uh, we have a great police department with some great police officers. Uh, it's just unfortunate that a few of those officers uh, have done their own thing. And as a result, uh, it's it's led to a lot of damage and a lot of hurt. Um, there have been individuals who, over the years, have been treated unfairly. and. It, the tensions, is, it's, it's hard to explain, they are really, really high. Uh, whenever you see the police in our neighborhood, I live on 66 and King Drive. The South Chicago Sun-Times wrote an article uh, three years ago that it's the most dangerous block in the city of Chicago. Mm-hmm. And um, when you see police in the area and you have individuals in the area, it causes just a very tense, mm-hmm. a very, very tense situation.
2: Yeah, I agree. They're not good at all, I don't think they've been good for years. I think what's been happening lately, both nationally and locally, with the police and police shootings, has has it just exacerbated those tensions um, to like an unimaginable point. I mean, I'm, even I feel like when I get pulled over, I was never, uh, c- um, you know, comfortable being pulled over. But even the last like year or so, myself being pulled over, I, I am even like, a, you know, just. I, uncomfortable is not the right word. Scared is probably a better word, you know? Um, I think that this is, it, it permeates the community. I think of one of my students who, this, this kid was like a straight A and B student, you know, did all the right things, came to school like on time, great kid, never had any issues. Um, one day I was in my office and uh, I, they bring the kid into me and they said, Ms. George, we have to show you something. It was my a staff member to show you something. And they laid a gun down on my desk. And it was this kid's gun. This is a straight A student, like never had any issues. Comes to Ooh. school on time, and obviously, you know, we had to call the police because there's a gun in the school. But um, when I when I asked him, like, I told him to leave my office, and I asked everyone, like, to leave. I said to him, I was like, "What happened? Like, what? Like, what are you doing? You know, this is not that kid, you know?" And he was like, "I didn't feel, I didn't feel safe. I didn't, I didn't know how to Ooh. get from my house." To school and be safe. That's a fail. That's a, a failing of a whole bunch of systems, but also like I mean, if you if you knew the community in which I worked, like there's police all up and down like that area, but the child didn't feel safe, and so I think there's um, to say that their their the relations are not good um, is an understatement, understatement. But I still think there is hope, and I think there are things that can be done to well, to resolve. Let's it talk about
1: time. let me just talk about kind of the state of relations, then we'll talk about some of the things that can be done.
3: Um, they're, they're not good, and they've marginally maybe gotten just a little bit better because there's been a level of scrutiny going on now. Um, but, you know, as Liz was saying, uh, overall, there's they're still this fear. And when I keep talking about systems, I was never a big systems guy until I got into this world, but you think about this element. Like in our jail, if you are brought in on a gun case, you're going to, 25% of the gun offenders bail out within a week. If you're charged with retail theft, only 4% get out. Ooh. And the amount of money they come up with is huge. Why? The guys who are brought in on gun cases, all the gangs want to have a shooter, a guy who doesn't really care, who will shoot people. And so they'll come up with the money, substantial Ooh. amounts to get them out. So then back in the community, a community where people are afraid, and everybody has guns. They see these people are getting picked up on guns. They're right back in the community again. And so when I talk to detainees there, they tell me that same story. It's like Tom, you got to have the gun. It's so violent out there. And it's very difficult to, to argue with their logic there. But permeating that is the fact, though, that they don't look as the failsafe going talking to the police. Uh-huh. And then you add to the closure rate being so low. Right. They'll sit there and say, well, this homicide occurred. No one got arrested. Yeah. And so it builds this thing, this lack of trust. And then the other part of it is so prevalent right now on the police side of it. I've talked to loads of police officers who said, listen, in this environment right now, if I get a call, If I drive up, if I get out of my car, I might lose my job. If I stay in my car, I'm not going to lose my job. And who's to say that I didn't see something or I did? So what it means is there's this hesitancy on the police department at times to get involved. There's, as, you know, Corey mentioned, most of the police are phenomenal people. Mm-hmm. And they take these, the, 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 the violence is so bad, and the shootings are so bad, and they're getting shot at all the time. And they get out and get in the middle of this. But is there some of it that has, you know, been pulled back a little bit because they, they feel that no one's supporting them? So you have all these things coming together right now that make it so that the community as a whole, there's lack of trust and there's lack of a feeling that the, the resolution is gonna work the way the system's supposed to.
1: You know, uh, in terms of no one supporting them, uh, under President Obama, the city seemed to be heading toward a court-supervised consent decree to oversee its police reforms. And the Trump administration, Jeff, Jeff Sessions, attorney general, essentially is shelving the idea of consent decrees, and now the city is asking the Justice Appo- Department to appoint an independent monitor to oversee the reforms. A group of civil rights groups have sued to, re- to demand court-supervised reform. I'm just interested in your thoughts. Would an independent monitor uh, supervising the reforms give you confidence, or, or would you be reluctant to say that will be enough, given the underlying reality that the Trump administration simply doesn't want to uh, apply the kind of consent decree that seemed to be heading toward the city's way?
4: I think an outside monitor would be great. Um, for the sake of building um, trust. Um, I think if the community is ever going to trust the police department, they're gonna have to be, there's gonna have to be someone from the outside to, to help judge things, to help mm-hmm. monitor things, and so I believe that it would be a good thing uh, for them to have an outside source to, to oversee it.
1: You think that's enough, or do you, you think it has to be the court in the end?
2: I think well just, uh, a court. I, I, I agree with Corey, but I would add to that I think the America that I know if that's serious is mm. called America I know is not really concerned about a consent decree they just want to be safe and that's what like when yeah. we think about everyday families and people that I mean I interact with they just want to be safe and so whatever what whatever that takes, whatever that will whether that's a consent decree, whether it's court monitored, whether that means you know whatever, which is just, just that that's what people
3: are looking for. I, I just go got out of a 40-year consent decree. Yes, yeah, so you, you just come out of right? Yes, exactly, yeah, and,
1: and I, that was I, a lot I,
2: of
3: fun.
1: Let's talk about that in a second. <laughs> but before we do, before we get to that, um, you know, what feels to be happening in many cities, and Chicago is not unique, that, that we're facing scrutiny from the Justice Department, is that the Trump administration, in effect, and I think Chicago, it's fair to say this, is allying with the police union, who were skeptical of these kind of reforms, against the elected officials and community leaders who want
3: these kinds of reforms. And doesn't that just widen the distance? It it does, it does, It, it can't help but do that, Ron. I mean, the reality of it is, is that, yeah, having monitors, is it painful? Does it get to be expensive? Yes, but what ends up happening at the end of the day, and I can tell you this firsthand, when you come to that sort of like, you know, fork in the road, and you have the, like in my case, a county board saying we don't have the money for this, you have the ability to go to the uh, monitor and the federal judge to say you will have the money for this. And so it, it gets you to get the things that you need to get across the finish line. Because otherwise, there's a million ways to do this on the cheap that is not going to restore the confidence and actually fix things. And a lot of really good people, I think, feel, truly believe you don't need the monitor and the consent decree on the rest of the stuff. I can just tell you that we had so many different times where having the consent decree helped us
1: you were under court supervision from 1974 until yeah. just recently.
3: Yeah. I mean, I don't know what to do with myself now. Yeah. <laughs> um,
1: and what, what are the lessons? You, you And you said, in effect, that becomes a lever for change. Yeah. Right? I mean, you, it, it is
3: a backstop for those who want I mean, one of the big issues we had always had in jails throughout the country is what goes on in them and use of force and are people getting beaten? I want to put cameras everywhere. Those are really expensive. And then have people actually watching them, really expensive. I got the money to do that. Mm -hmm. If I just gone to my county board and said, and county board, good people, but would they have jumped on board saying, we're gonna spend these millions and millions of dollars to get these cameras?" No, They, they would not have done that. And so we were able to put certain levels of, um, supervision that was not there before so that now when anything occurs people know what's going on and we have this transparency that is what people need.
1: I, I'm bringing the audience for questions in a minute because I'm sure we have plenty but you know the, the framework from uh, uh, the attorney general has been in essence that police reform is in tension with improving safety. I mean what he's basically saying is we've gone too far toward demanding changes on the part of the police, and that is costing lives, that, that is his argument. The other point of view was expressed by uh, the head of the Justice Department Civil Rights Division under Obama, Vanita Gupta, to CNN recently. He said, it's hard to see how you can have a crime-fighting stra- strategy that doesn't address the very serious trust issues that we found in our investigation that would lead to greater trust between residents and police. So do you view police reform as something that is kind of separate? from reducing violence, or do you view it as a component of reducing violence?
4: I kind of view it as something separate from reducing violence. I think you have the police reforms that need to happen, but you also have things that need to happen in the community. That you can fix the police all day whatever problem you may think that they have but at the end of the day, you're still going to have community issues. At the end of the day, you're still going to have Mm. gangs. You're still going to have guys dropping out of school at an alarming rate. You're still going to have uh, unemployment at an alarming rate. You're still going to have the breakdown of a family. So you can have the best police department in the world Mm. but if you still have all these social ills that are going on, no matter of police um, greatness is going to solve those issues and so I think they're separate. Liz, what about you? I think it's all,
2: I think it's a piece of the puzzle. I don't Mm. think there's any one thing you could do that would solve this. I think it's it's a mo- bunch of puzzle pieces that you have to put together to make sense and to ha- create change.
1: You know, the, you, you, you've talked a couple times about the, the lack of the closure rate. Uh, there's a terrific book, uh, Ghetto Side, about Los Angeles, the Los it. Angeles police. Yeah. And uh, Jill Levy, uh, a former colleague of the LA Times, you know, kind of makes the point that the lack of justice when people get killed, that how I think only the, I, the Chicago police identified suspects in only 29% of all homicides. This year it's
3: down to 14. Let, wow.
1: Mm-hmm. So what is the impact of that in a community?
3: How can, what, how, I mean, yeah. how can you not lose all faith in it? And then when you start talking about the fact, think about this. So you or one of your friends in your gang has just been shot or shot at, and you don't feel that anyone's going to be brought to justice, it becomes almost second nature. It's like we're going to handle this ourselves. So the, the police, as they say, my God, they're trying. But as a former prosecutor, I can tell you, you can't bring a case if you have no witnesses. And so when it permeates in their mind that there is not going to be closure here, I need to handle this. Do the the
1: kids you work with, would they, if someone they knew had been shot, would they talk to the police? No.
2: No, I used to have kids that would come or parents that would come and they would talk to me to tell me about who might have shot so-and-so, but they would never go to the police. And I think it's understandably so. I mean, when you think about um, not just losing one or two friends, but like losing like multiple people that you know and somehow miraculously never, n- that is never solved. I and mean, there's a lot of residual like anger and hate that resides in there. It's like almost like what came first, the chicken or the egg? So who's who's gonna give first? Is it gonna be the community that will like, you know, work with the police or the pol- like police are gonna begin to solve more crimes make the community feel more it's 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 complicated but, but, but would
1: you feel that as long as so few crimes are solved isn't the cycle inexorable i mean it, it's 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 impossible to break if people take it feel they have to take it upon themselves to avenge any of the crimes that have already happened
4: that's the reason why it's really important for organizations not for profit organizations to get grassroots uh, with those individuals because until you change the mindsets of those individuals you're it, the violence in Chicago will not change. And so it's real important uh, that we deal with those individuals who are, are, are specifically responsible for the violence because they're, they're not gonna tell. Uh, so there's a lot of retaliation. So it's important that we get our hands on them to, to, to redirect them in a more positive way so that hopefully uh, things can begin to change.
0: How do we engage with people whom we disagree with the most? In a divided America, conversations about personal beliefs are increasingly hard to have. Todd Fogel's job is to literally encourage difficult talks. He runs the seminars department at the Aspen Institute.
3: Common ground doesn't mean agreement. It means taking the time and inhabiting a space where we can really understand each other and work together not because we agree, but because we understand where and why we disagree.
0: In our sister podcast, Aspen Insight, Bray Fogel explains the methods he uses to get people to better understand one another, and themselves. Find the interview with Bray Fogle by searching Aspen Insight in your favorite podcast player. The episode's called Speaking Up, or find a link to the episode in our show notes. Here's the rest of today's conversation about violence in Chicago and beyond. Ron Brownstein.
1: Let's go to the audience. Uh, we have lots of questions. Um, over here in the middle.
2: So I'm a native Chicagoan with family still living in not so far from your neighborhood. And I want to know whether some of the programs that have involved former or people who have sort of been violent in the gangs who've gotten out of it, going and talking one on one with current gang members, there was some national movement to use more of these kinds of programs. Does that still exist? Are the things you respect and value for possible success? And do you know of any in Chicago that are still working? I know they've been kind of controversial sometimes, but um, I forget the names, unfortunately, but there have even been documentaries. done There's a
3: lot of different programs that have former detainees and former convicts working. And we have a couple that are pretty successful, but it's really across the board. There's many programs that have former inmates in them. Uh, the thing that all the different programs and this is what Liz confronts is that historically most all these programs almost all had no metrics attached to them at all they had people who felt real strongly about their issue but as far as actually coming there and saying listen recidivism rate you name it even programs in the jail when I got there we had a boot camp it was all the rage in the 80s they didn't work but they they were all the rage because we made people do push-ups and when I looked at mine The numbers were startling. You were actually more likely to commit offense than not. But when I asked my people, hey, what's the success rate, they always, what do you want it to be? I was like, well, that's really not what I was looking for. But most of these programs have that. So there's a lot of former detainees, former inmates. I think it's brilliant having them engaged. Who better to connect with people?
2: And that's part of what Chicago Beyond is trying to do, what Tom mentioned, is to be able to give these nonprofits and people who are doing real grassroots work to give them the data behind what they're doing so they can further develop their programs, solicit more dollars, and create sustainability.
1: Over here. I'm from New Orleans, and we have a microcosm of the same problems that you have in Chicago. Currently, we have a big problem. I have two questions for you. We are operating under a consent decree that's eight years old. Do the consent decrees continue to work? Once we have, eight years ago, we had some bad cops. It's over. How do we get rid of the consent decree and keep the level of policing that we have? Mm. Secondly, with response to what you have, with more policemen, if I gave you a budget to double your police budget and double the number of officers on the street, would it matter?
3: Well, thoughtful consent decrees build into them, the sustainability element. So it builds into all sorts of checks and balances, accountability, all that. So I believe ours will be sustainable for, for I don't wanna say forever, but I believe close to it. Um, The difficulty gets to be with some of the cost involved with it, because it is very expensive to get there. We spent $57 million so far. Yeah, we spent more. And one of our monitors that we had is the monitor down there. And boy, they told me, you have boatloads of problems down there. And so the reality is it's going to be expensive. It's going to be painful. And how the police department takes it is going to be very unique to that local jurisdiction, because the initial reaction always is, to, to, you know, it's us against them type of thing. And so that's you know, going to be very tricky. I would love to hear
1: Liz and Reverend Brooks re- react to the, others, the other side. Would you want to see more police on the streets in those neighborhoods?
2: I think so. Uh, two things on that. So I think, one, you can add more police. And I think that this is, you know, this is my perspective. I think that you'd see, you know, a marginal perhaps decrease in, in some of the shootings from the violence. But until we get, again, to the root of the issues, which have to do with, like, education, investing in communities and, like, mental health services and, like, fatherless homes and those types of things, you're never going to see that long-term sustained change and impact. And so I think it's you can't police and arrest your way out of this situation.
1: You know, before I go to the audience again, one thing that's really struck me in listening to this, you've all talked about this uh, as a very complex puzzle with a lot of pieces, and there are also clearly a lot of different kinds of institutions responding. There's the educational system, there's the criminal justice system, there's the police, there are nonprofits In Chicago, and and we haven't really talked that much about the private sector, but there are private sector initiatives, companies that are are thinking about ways to, to intervene. In Chicago, how well do all of these pieces work together plan together, fit together, or is it all everyone just out rowing their own boat and you, you, know, you, you collide into each other? I mean, you've been, you've been on several sides of this, so let me start with you.
2: I mean, it's like I said earlier. I feel like, it's, in some ways, it feels like it's it's hurting cats in a lot of ways. I feel like there's a lot of disconnectedness there, um, where there could be a lot of synergy. I think part of that is created uh, by a few things. I think one, sometimes in the philanthropic world, we pit like nonprofit against nonprofit, and so instead of like this natural collaboration that should occur because people are competing for dollars, I think it sometimes like it it, it discourages collaboration. And I think that's part of it. I think there are political factors that are in play here between the county and the city, and I think. That creates a lot of the kind of the disconnect that we see. So I think um, it is it is complicated, but it doesn't have to be as complicated and non collaborative. Um, and there are don't get me wrong, there are like I think small pockets of collaboration and, and where people are you know finding synergies and doing good work. But I think by and large, if I had to say like you know is it functioning at the tip top level, I would say absolutely not.
1: Sure. When you, when you talk about the, you know the challenge <laughs> of how many people you release and getting them on some sort of pathway. Are you able to effectively partner with nonprofit groups in the communities, or is that relatively difficult with the kind of constraints that you operate under,
3: legal, political? Well, it's a little tricky, but I always tell people, think about this for a second. Outside of executing someone, the second most impactful thing a society can do is to incarcerate them. When I became sheriff, our jail management system that told me who's who and... The rest was a DOS-based computer system. It was lucky if I can tell you who was in the place. And so we now have a different one that was allows it kept us on floppy disks. Oh yeah, mm-hmm. floppy disks—those yeah. big green pieces of paper yeah. that folded over like this. Mm-hmm. I put them out of business when I got out mm-hmm. of that. And. Um, But the reality of it is, is we never took it real seriously. I mean, we being the criminal justice system, that our role is not just to churn people out. And from a sheriff's standpoint, we're only supposed to be holding people for a short period of time before trial. So it discourages sheriffs all around the country from planning and from looking into it. And so for us, we've spent all this money on technology and bringing young people in from the universities to work with us to find out, A, what caused them to come in, B. What do we have in front of us? And, and C. Where can we send them out there? Our big problem, though, then is the different partners out there. They want to, but they're, they're, they're even before we got so dysfunctional in Illinois, they didn't weren't really well funded to start with. Mm-hmm. But they don't have the capacity to do it, which speaks volumes about our society. So, what is your capacity to
1: coordinate and magnify your efforts, working with other nonprofits, or for that matter, the police and the public schools? How are you able to kind of? you know, row together?
4: Yeah, we really believe in collaboration, and uh, I'm glad that the sheriff is here because we can take all of his individuals who are coming out who live in the Woodline, Inglewood, just send them right over to us. Your we'll take all of them, yeah. an <laughs> we'll take every single one of them, and, and we do it, uh, and I'm grateful Uh, we do it without government funding Uh, we have not received government grants we don't take government grants nor do I want a government grant um, to to run our programs because I really do believe that that breeds a lot of the competition between a lot of the non for profits they're always trying to get um, the grant they're always trying to get um, the finances to stay afloat and and with it when that happens it causes some animosity. And so we've decided we're not gonna take government grants so that we can collaborate with other organizations and so they don't see us as a threat uh, to their financial uh, portfolio, but they see us as a partner who really wants to do something to enhance the neighborhood. And so that's that's how we go about it.
1: We're, we're down to our last couple of minutes. I, I'm just interested, you know, you've all talked about, the, and understandably, about kind of the magnitude of this challenge and not to expect uh, instant solutions, but what do you think are reasonable near-term goals for the for your community, for the city. What should people in Chicago hold their leaders accountable for achieving over the next two or three years?
3: With you. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that, was, that was pretty cool, the way it just went right yeah. down. Yeah. The, yeah. Exactly. I don't
1: know if there's anybody over in the, you can turn to yeah. <laughs> the audience and ask them. <laughs>
3: yeah, I, I think that the people within the city of Chicago have to hold all of the elected people's feet to the fire. Because I'll just be honest with you, I'd love to give you the statement that all of the different elected people care. They don't. I mean, let's just be honest. I mean, the reality is most of these issues are well known. They've been around for a while. But the amount of people actively engaged with it are not a lot. So we have to start by holding the elected people accountable by saying, listen, we're going to set what our modest goals, which are going to be when we see decrease in shootings, decrease in homicides there. So let's start with that. And then we're going to have a protracted investment, reinvestment in these communities so that I have places I can hand people off to more readily so that we look at it is that I always tell people in my jail, probably, I don't know, 30 percent, 20 percent, take your pick, are evil. Don't know how they got there, but they're evil people. The 70, the biggest percent, we can work with them. We can fix them. They're people who've made mistakes. Made mistakes that, frankly, if I made the same mistake, I would have had someone bond me out. I probably might not have even been arrested in the first place. But so this larger group, we can fix them with just thoughtful plans that have metrics attached to them, like what Liz is doing, that have the, the handoff. So I work with them inside. We hand them off to someone who stays connected to them. So this is all really doable things, and the public has to hold this, starting with... The numbers of the homicides and the shootings, so that there's some faith it's going in the right directions and change people's mentalities. Unless you want to add something, I think that's a. Do you, do you want to add a thought about? I
2: would just only thing I would add on to that. I agree with like the decrease in shootings and homicides and you know homicides and those things. But I also think there has some. We have to hold our leaders accountable for investing in our educational system. I've said this about four times uh, mm. on this panel, but I think it's it's absolutely critical for a, most of our young people. That is the only pathway out for them to have a more productive life. I think that. That's important we as well. You get the
1: last word.
4: Okay. Um. I think investment into the community, uh, giving people an opportunity, regardless of what color they are, regardless of whether they live on the south side, north side, or west side of Chicago. Until we give an opportunity to everyone, um, then we're gonna continue to see the violence and we need to make sure that we hold all of our elected officials, uh, just making them be more accountable. I always tell our, our church, people don't do what you expect, they do what you inspect. And so we need to continually inspect our, uh, our leaders and, and make sure that they're following through on what they said they're gonna do.
1: Well, there's a lot of uh, you know a lot of dark clouds uh, in, in this subject, but I think all of you have kind of lit a candle here today. So you join me in thanking Corey Brooks, Liz Dozier, and Tom Darn. Thank you.
0: Ron Brownstein is an award-winning journalist who contributes to The Atlantic and National Journal. Liz Dozier is a lifelong educator who has spent her career working to interrupt the culture of inequity pervasive in urban schools. She runs Chicago Beyond. Corey Brooks pastors a non-denominational church on Chicago's South Side. His project, Hood, seeks to end violence and build communities. As Sheriff of Cook County, Tom Dart has worked to reduce the number of nonviolent offenders detained in the county jail. Today's speakers were on stage at the Aspen Ideas Festival in June 2017. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas To Go on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Follow Aspen Ideas To Go year-round on Twitter and Facebook at Aspen Ideas. Today's show was produced by Marcy Krivenan and recorded by our team at the Aspen Institute. The Aspen Ideas Festival programming team is Kitty Boone, Killeen Bretman, Katie Cassetta, Libby Franklin, Brett Howley, Peter Kaplan, Jamie Miller, and me, Trisha Johnson. Our theme music is by Jim Brunsberg and Ben Landsberg of Wonderly. That's our show for today. Thanks for listening.